Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, welcome to you. Great to have you here. Children, again, thank you for coming. Thank you for sitting down here. We are glad you are here. We have those sheets again for you. Uh, please do try and do them as much as you can. Even if you can't do them, I really enjoyed looking at all your drawings and everything you gave me, all the verses that you wrote in between and all of that stuff. So I look at that during the week. It helps me pray for you and think about you. So please uh, do come to me afterwards at the end of the service. And then when we finish Colossians, which hopefully is soon, uh, I'll have something for you guys. So I'd love uh, if that could happen. Turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 4, please. Colossians chapter 4. Now there's something, um, <laughs> there's something that you guys do, and we all do it, uh, when someone gets up here to preach. As someone gets up here to preach, here's what you do in your mind. You turn on what I call the sermon clock. And you turn that sermon clock on, and, and, and certain people have different time frames for that sermon clock and how long that's going to be. So as soon as I start speaking, you in your minds, you turn that sermon clock on. My goal in life is to smash the clock, um, but I don't think I'll ever be able to do that. But before you turn that clock on, I need to say something to you. So before we start and before you turn that clock on, I need to say something to you. And it is this. Last week, you know, when you're talking about a passage that is controversial in some ways or has different views and opinions and, and all those things, as a preacher and as a teacher, you have a decision to make. And the decision you have to make is this. What do I do with the what ifs? Because as you preach difficult passages and as you talk through it, everybody has in their minds and says to themselves, well, what if this and what if that? And what if this and what if that? And the challenge for the teacher, the challenge for the preacher is how many of those do I deal with or do I even bring them up at all? And so, so one of those issues, as I was chatting with a number of you actually during the week, and it's, it's so good to talk about the sermon with you guys. So if ever you have any questions, come to me, chat with me. I'd love that. But, but let me give you an example of some, some of the what ifs. And I don't think, to be honest, I don't think I did a really good job with all of the what ifs. But let me give you some of the examples for wives and husbands, right? It says, wives, submit to your, to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. And then it says, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Okay, so those are the commands. They, they come together as a package. And then you start asking the what ifs. Well, a wife might ask, well, what if I'm called to submit to a husband? What if he calls me to do something or tries to lead me in a way that would not honor the Lord? What if? Should I submit to him then? And the answer is, of course, no, because you are to submit to him as is fitting unto the Lord. And it wouldn't be fitting and wouldn't be pleasing unto the Lord to submit to someone who's going to lead you down the wrong path. Who is the Lord in your home, not the husband. The Lord is the Lord. And so that is the first what if. The second what if is this. What if the husband is physically abusive? Do I just stay quiet? Do I just do nothing? Do I submit in that situation? Well, I would say again, no. Would it be fitting in the Lord to just stay quiet in that moment and sit under that? At that moment, you don't be silent and submit under that leadership. You actually go and speak with someone. 
And too often the church has neglected talking about and speaking about the issue of abuse in people's lives. And we need to talk about that. We need to acknowledge that that happens. But the third what if is this. What if, what if he's, he's not demanding me to do something that's against the Lord? What if he's not physically abusive in any way? But what if he's just not doing his job properly? What if he's not loving properly as he should? What if? And the answer to that question is actually in a different passage, and I'm just going to read it to you. It's in Philip 1 Peter 3. It says this, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one with the word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So what if my husband isn't doing his job? What if he isn't obeying the word? Well, one Peter would answer that question well in saying, you win him without a word. You can be submissive to him in that way as on to the Lord. The good thing is, um, the next book we're going to be doing is 1 Peter. So we can go back to that again and look at this again together. So now you can switch your clocks on and we'll see how we go. Okay, so Colossians 4, Colossians 4, uh, verse 2 to 6. Let's read it together. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, Pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each other. This passage is clearly about one thing, and it is prayer. Look at the command, verse 2, continue steadfastly in prayer. It has been said, if you ever want to humble someone, you ask them this question. How's your prayer life going? So, how is your prayer life going? How is it going with you and just talking with God? Communing with God? Speaking with God? How is your prayer life going? It is a really humbling question, isn't it? To ask ourselves, well, am I communicating with God? Am I praying to God? And so this passage begins by telling us this very important thing. Continue steadfastly in prayer. And I love this translation, the way it says that. It's two English words and one Greek word. And, and it comes along with this, this, this power in terms of what it's calling us to do. Continue steadfastly. Devote yourself intensely to prayer. In other words, do not give up in prayer. I don't know if you've ever done this before, but have you ever tried to screw in a screw that is over your head? And we're not talking into a soft wall. I'm talking screwing it into a hard wall. Have you ever done that before? You've kind of raised your hands up over it and you start going. 
And you start with all this intensity, don't you? And you start pushing against the screw. And then suddenly, what happens? Well, if you're me, you give up after about two seconds and you go, and your hands are limp. I think that's what happens often in our prayer lives. We sit and we pray and and we start earnestly, devotingly trying to pray. And we give up because we realize what? Prayer is hard. Prayer is difficult. And so this is why I think he tells us, continue steadfastly in prayer. That tells us something about prayer. The prayer is going to take effort. Prayer doesn't just happen overnight. You are going to continue in your life in prayer. And the reason why prayer is so difficult is because I wonder if, if any of this has happened to you. Have you ever, have you ever started to pray at night and have you ever just fallen asleep? Has that ever happened to you? Or maybe early in the morning, maybe you want to be really holy and you get up early in the morning and suddenly you realize I'm praying but I fall asleep. Or, have you ever started praying and as you start praying, your, your mind just starts going into all sorts of other places. Then you start thinking about, you know, the dinner or bills or something like that or conversations with people. You start praying with for a person and then you start having conversations with them in your head. And before you know it, by the end of the prayer, you're not really praying at all. You're just thinking about life. Has that ever happened to you? Or have you ever said someone's talked to you and they say, you know, um, uh, could you just pray for this? And you say, yes, I'll, I'll pray for that. And then you don't pray for that. Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever, have you ever given up in prayer? You start praying for something or someone and you've been praying for that something or someone for so, so long that you just think, God's not even answering. God's not even there. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to give up. Has that ever happened to you? Guess where I got all those examples from? I didn't look it up in a book. All of it has happened to me. And I'm sure all of it has happened to you. This is why I think he says this command. This is why this command is so important for us. Continue steadfastly in prayer. If that stuff happens to you, do you know what that means for you? You are a human being and you fail. But by the grace of God, you are called to continue on in steadfast prayer. And so he answers this question really for us. How are we to pray? That's the first question we ask. How are we to pray? And the answer is continuously and steadfastly. Now, how am I going to keep going continuously and steadfastly in prayer? Well, he says this to us. There's two ways we do this steadfast prayer by being watchful in it with thanksgiving, by being watchful and with thanksgiving. There is a word I think we have lost in our Christian vocabulary, and it is this watchfulness or the art of being watchful. And the reality of being watchful has, has, has this in mind. If we are to be watchful in prayer, or if we are to be alert in prayer, what are we doing? Well, in the New Testament, it refers to this idea of, of watching out, or being watchful, or being alert. It refers to that in relation to Jesus' second coming. 
We are watchful. We are alert. We are waiting for his arrival. But when it uses that word watchful or when it uses that word being alert in that way, when it gives that description, it's not just talking about us sitting um, and waiting for Jesus. What it's talking about when it uses that word watchful in the New Testament is that we would watch our own lives in light of the fact that Jesus is coming back. So you're not just sitting watching for Jesus, hoping that he will come. Yes, we are doing that. But what we're doing is we're sitting watching our own lives, being alert how we live and waiting for Jesus to come. That is how we pray watchfully. Second, he talks to us about praying with thanksgiving in our prayer. So if I'm going to continue on in praying steadfastly, I must pray watchfully and I must pray with thanksgiving, giving thanks to the Lord. Now, there's something that has blown me away when I've been thinking about uh, Colossians. And as I've been looking at this letter with you, there is a theme that I never knew was really prominent in this letter until I started studying it and teaching it to you. And it was this theme of thankfulness. It comes up again and again in this letter to be thankful. And so you'll see it in Paul. When he begins this letter, he begins with what? He begins with thanksgiving. Chapter 1, verse 3. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. So when Paul prays in chapter 1, verse verse 3, he is praying, thanking God. Now what is amazing about his prayer of thanks thankfulness is this. Number one, he has never met the church at Colossae and yet he is praying for them. That is amazing. Number two, where is he as he is praying with thankfulness? He is praying in chains under house arrest in Rome. There is also another, and that's if you believe that theory that he was under house arrest in Rome. I think he was. There was another letter he wrote when he was under house arrest. It was Philippians. And that other letter, guess what he begins with? He begins with thanksgiving. Again, when he is in prison. Do you know what? when it is most difficult for you to give thanks? When things are going wrong in your life. And I think prison counts for something going wrong in your life. And yet when he is in prison, do you know what he does? He lives in prayer and he lives in thanksgiving. And so when Paul prays, when Paul says to us, and be thankful, what he's calling us to do is not something that he himself is not doing. He is calling us to give thanks as he is doing. And so this is the prayer that we are to have in our lives. A steadfast prayer, a watchful prayer, prayer of thanksgiving to the Lord. This is how we are to pray. And so I've been bowled over when I've been look, when we've been looking at, at Luke together. I've mentioned it a number of times. It's this theme of Jesus' prayer life. As we've looked at the Gospel of Luke on Friday nights, Jesus prays throughout his life. He prays in the most important moments in his life. He prays at the baptism. He prays just before he selects his apostles. He, he prays as Peter gives his confession. He prays on the mountain of transfiguration. He prays in the garden, not my will, but your will be done. 
If there is anyone you believe that wouldn't have had to be steadfast in prayer, you'd think it's just Jesus. If there's anybody who could be casual in prayer, you would think it would be Jesus. But what he does often in his life and in his ministry, he goes away and he prays. And so it should be with his people. We go away and we pray. Are you failing in your prayer life? Well, if you are, don't just focus on the failure. Start again and continue steadfastly in prayer. Ask the Lord to help you. Ask others to help you. Let us walk alongside each other. This is how we are to pray steadfastly with thanksgiving. Man, I hope we will be a thankful church. This is my last plea for thankfulness because I don't think he mentions it again in the letter. Why do I say this? Because we have perfected the art of grumbling. We have. I'm not saying just this church. I'm saying us as human beings. So when we pray, there should be a tone of thankfulness. There should be language of thankfulness in our prayers. And that should be our lives in this church. So that is how we are to pray, steadfastly. What are we to pray? Well, the first thing we are to pray for is open doors. Verse 16. Or sorry, uh, verse 3. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Here's how I want you to pray. I want you to pray steadfastly. I want you to continue in prayer and I want you to not give up when you pray. Now, what are you to pray for? I want you to pray for open doors. Now, when I say that and when I look at that, I smile. I smile because of this. You you might know it as Christians, but as Christians, you need to know something. We have our own little language. We do. We have our own little language. And when, when people who are not Christians listen into us talking in our own little language, they, they wonder, what are you talking about? We have all these words and phrases that we use. Let me give you an example. Church planting. I was talking to someone about church planting before. They, they were asking me what I do. I never know how to explain it. Now I kind of have a, a thing that I do every Sunday, so I can, I can tell them I'm a minister or whatever it is. But, but church planter or church planting, when I, when I said that to someone who wasn't a Christian, they, they were trying to figure out what church and gardens had in common. You see, we use this language because we know what it is, but not a lot of people around us actually know what it is. We have our own language. Or we say things like this, the Lord laid it on my heart. Well, what did he lay on your heart? Doesn't your heart beat in your chest? Why would he lay something on your heart? And if they get an idea of, of, of what that means, well, well, how did he lay it on your heart? Does he speak to you verbally or, 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 or did you have a sense of it or, or what do you mean? And I actually don't even think Christians really know what they mean when we say he laid it on our hearts. So it is with open doors. Have you ever heard people praying saying, will you pray that God would open doors? Have you ever heard that? 
We use this phrase all the time. And so that phrase is here in the scripture. We say, pray for open doors. But we use it as a phrase like this. Pray, pray that God would open a door that I could get to this college. Or pray that God would open a door that I could do this job. Or pray that God would open a door so we could get this house. We use the language like that. Pray that God would open the door. But how does the New Testament use this language of open doors over and over again? Let let me read to you two examples. The first is in Acts 14, 27. It says this. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Second example, 2 Corinthians 2 verse 12. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord. And that's just two examples and there's a few others. When it talks in the New Testament about a door being opened, what it is is a door being opened for the gospel. A door being opened for the word of Christ to go forward. This is how we should pray. Let's pray for the gospel to go forward. Let's not just take this phrase and turn it back on ourselves and, and say, pray that God would open a door for my job and pray that God would open a door for my work. Let's pray that God would open a door for the word. Now, here's what I don't want you to do. Let's not go around like the language police and say, well, actually, did you not know that open the door didn't really mean that? No, let's not do that. But we should know what it does mean. It is a prayer that the door, a door for the word, the gospel would go forth. And so this is something that means a lot to Paul. And you know it's what means a lot to Paul is this, because he prays for the word to go forth. He prays for that word to go forth. He asks them in verse 3, Pray also for us that God may open a door for what? The word. He prays for the word. Secondly, he, he proclaims the word to declare the mystery of Christ. And what else? He is imprisoned for the word. On account of which I am in prison. He prays for the word, he proclaims the word, and he is imprisoned for the word, which means he is a man who is captivated by the word. If he wants one thing in life, there is one thing that he wants more than anything in his life, and that is that people would hear the word. He wants to pray for it, he wants to proclaim it, and he will go to prison for it. That is what I want for us as this church. That we would pray for it. That we would proclaim it. And that yes, we would even be willing to go to prison for it. Because it is the word of Christ. And what does he call this word? He calls this word the mystery of Christ. And when he calls this word the mystery of of Christ, this is not the first time he has said it. How do we explain this idea of the mystery? I have told this to you before. You know when you're driving in the morning and it's a cold morning and the, and the window is fogged up and, and you turn on the heater 
And slowly that heater starts heating up the window, but it does it all too slowly. And so you drive anyway, just to look in between the little gaps that you get. And slowly but surely, what happens? The fog starts to lift and the window starts to open. And then the mystery is revealed, right? So it is with the mystery that is in Christ. There is this small little picture in Genesis 3.15 that gave us this small little picture that there would be coming this one who would crush the head of the serpent. There is this small little picture in Genesis chapter 12 that there was coming a one who would bless all the nations. There was this small little picture in Genesis chapter 49 where there is coming this one in the line of Judah who would hold the scepter who would be the king. There is this small little picture In Leviticus chapter 1 to chapter 7, when it talked about all the offerings that would be offered, the small little picture that was slowly being revealed. This small little picture in Leviticus 23, when it was talking about the feasts and the festivals. This small little picture in 2 Samuel 7, that was talking about a king who would reign on the throne of David forever. This small little picture in Isaiah chapter 7, that was talking about this one who would be born of a virgin. This small little picture that was talking about this one on which the government would would be upon his shoulders. This small little picture in Isaiah 53 that spoke of a man who was despised and rejected for my sins of a savior a small little picture that was revealed in Christ he is the mystery that we proclaim and he is the one that you need and he is the one that we want this world to know about. So what should we pray for, brothers and sisters? We should pray for open doors. Oh God, would you open doors for your word in the gospel in this town? Would you open doors for your word in the gospel in in Rochestown and Monkstown and Cove? Would you open doors for your word around the world because this is what people need forget your possessions forget your stuff stop running after that start praying that god would move in power by his word that is what we are to ask for pray for open doors and also pray that lives would be changed around you This is why I think he says in our final verses, verses 5 to 6. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each other. First, he encourages them to pray for open doors, for doors to open for Paul. But now he is encouraging them to live in such a way that open doors would come in your own lives. Verse 5, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of time. You know, people might get offended by that idea of outsiders. That there, that Christians would even talk about that or Paul would use that language that there is outsiders. But all it is, it's not a derogatory phrase. All it is, is just stating facts. There are those that are in the faith and there are those that are outside of the faith. 
There are those that trust in Jesus and there are those that don't trust in Jesus. The Bible is very black and white with how this works. There are those who are in and those who are out. And the reason why we need to know that there are those who are out is because we need to know who we're to share this news with. And again, you might you might think, well, that's really offensive that you would think I was out and that you would consider how you should speak or talk with me. But if we believe what we believe, there is nothing more loving for us to do then seek to speak to those who do not believe what we believe. And I could think of nothing more hateful than to believe what we believe about heaven and hell and not speak to people about it and not pray, Lord, help me make the best use of my time that I might be able to tell people about you There are people that are outside today. We need to make the best use of our time. Have you noticed something about us nowadays? We are time wasters. We are. Think about how much time you spend on your phone and on your gadgets and on your gizmos. Think about how much time you spend on that. You know, I got this software on my computer. I, I put it on my computer and what it does is it sends me a report every week on the beginning of the week on Monday. And so what it does is it tells me at the beginning of the week how I spent my time on my computer last week. And it does it in percentages. Here's how much time you spent on Word. Here's how much time you spent on the Bible app. Here's how much time you spent on Sky Sports News. All of that stuff. It tells me everything. Why do I do that? Because I don't want to waste my time on this silly little thing. I want to make the best use of my time. And so we as Christians in our lives, we need to assess our lives and how we're spending time with those who are not Christians and are we making the best use of that time? Are we redeeming that time? And what is the best way to make the best use of that time? The best way to make the best use of that time is to speak graciously. Verse 6, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Let us think about other people that we are talking with. Let us allow other people who are not Christians have a different opinion than us. And let us speak to them and use those opportunities. I was so You'll be so amazed if you start looking at your life from a different angle and start seeing, Lord, you've put people in my life and how am I going to speak to them? When I'm at work, when I'm in the playground, even yesterday when we were walking around, the Lord had just put different people that, that didn't believe in my life and, and gave little opportunities. I failed in some. Um, I was a bit more successful in others. But, but just this reality of, Lord, will you, will you help me when I'm talking to other people? Make use of this time. Have these conversations. Allow them talk to me. Allow me talk to them. And let's be ready to give some answers. Let's pray that God would help us make best use of our time with other people. Prayer is something that is so important, brothers and sisters. And it is something that we should not give up on. 
we are to continue steadfastly in our prayer. I think of that account, that story of of um, Moses Hall. Moses Hall, he was um, an African pastor in Jamaica in the 1800s. And Moses Hall in the 1800s as an African pastor in Jamaica, they, him and his friends were taken on as slaves in Jamaica. They had masters. And the masters hated their prayer meetings because they always gathered together for prayer. And one day his assistant David was leading a prayer meeting. And the masters came to the prayer meeting and they broke up the prayer meeting. And they took David and they decapitated him. And they put his head on a pole in the village for all to see. And then they brought Moses Hall forward and they said, Moses, who is that man? He said, it's David, sir. Why is that man up there? For praying, sir. Let this be a lesson to you. Stop what you are doing. Do you know what Moses Hall did? He walked to the pole beside his friend. He knelt down and he said, let us pray. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. That we have the opportunity to talk with you even now is a wonder. And Lord, I pray that you would help us be those who are steadfast in prayer. Continuing on in prayer. Praying that doors would be opened. Praying for lives and people we are speaking with and talking with. Praying that we would not be arrogant but be gracious in our words. Praying. That we would see every opportunity as a window to tell people about the most important person in our lives. You, our Savior. Help us, Lord. In your name. Amen. Let's stand and sing uh, for the cause together.